Hello and welcome to Rooted and Unwithered. I'm Cole Newton, and the following is an article that was posted August 13th, 2023, and it's titled, A Better Hope Than Homer. A couple of months ago, for no particular reason, I grabbed a copy of Tolkien's translation of Beowulf from off the shelf, and I began to read it. Having only read a bit of Beowulf in high school, I only remembered that Beowulf fights a monster named Grendel and also a dragon. While I've since learned that, although beautiful, few would consider Tolkien's translation to be a good starting point for the ancient poem, I was hooked, and my enjoyment of Beowulf somehow stirred up a desire to familiarize myself with the other epic poems from history that I was only semi-introduced to during school. And so I've set eight before me. The Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, Beowulf, probably Haney's translation this next time through, the Divine Comedy, the Canterbury Tales, the Fairy Queen, and Paradise Lost. First up, then, was the Iliad. Although I knew of Achilles, Hector, Odysseus, and Helen, I dove in with little more context than that. And while the lectures of Elizabeth Van Diver were very helpful and have been for the Odyssey as well, it should be sufficiently noted that the following thoughts are from a very admitted Homeric novice. With that said, the most noticeable feature of the Iliad for me was the violence. I knew that the premise of the story revolved around the Greeks' siege of the city of Troy, but I was not expecting the continuous brutality of war that Homer describes. Indeed, the violence is so pervasive that, throughout, that I can easily open to a random page and find a quick sample, which, and that is exactly what I did, opened up the book randomly and just found the first example of violence that I could find. And that's from book 11, lines 526 through 536. And it says this, and this is from Fagel's translation of the Iliad. And spinning in terror off, he ran as he spun. Odysseus plunged a spear in his back between the shoulders. Straight through his chest, the shaft came jutting out, and down Socus crashed, Odysseus vaunting over him. Socus, son of Hapasus, skilled breaker of horses, so death in its rampage outraced you. No escape. No, poor soldier. Now your father and noble mother will never close your eyes in death. Screaming vultures will claw them out of you, wings beating your corpse. But if I, if I should die, my comrades will bury me in style. While there are Certainly plenty of pauses in the fighting. Most battles are filled with such slaughter, and they're lengthy, and they left me feel feeling almost as ready for a respite as probably the combatants must have been. Indeed, if I had known how much the, the Iliad was spent describing the actual battles of the Trojan War, I might have been a little bit more excited to read it. After all, in epics and fantasies, it's the battle scenes that are the big showstoppers, right? And yet, Herein is exactly where the, the wisdom of Homer lies, as far as I see it. You see, although the warriors in the Iliad are fighting for glory and honor, and perhaps the best expression of this is from Book 12, line 381, where Sar Sarpedon is crying to Glaucus, and he says, Give our enemies glory or win it for ourselves. Homer seems to be showcasing the futility of it all. As a storyteller, Homer does an excellent job raising the tension throughout, and even as he has also directly told us the outcome of the battle, first of all, he's told us that Troy will fall. He shows us the might of Hector, he shows us the continuous interference of the gods, and he withholds from us Achilles from the fight until the very end. 
Thus, after Patroclus' death, we would expect the great climactic battle scene to follow. And indeed, there are three scenes which we would probably think should be climactic, and yet they prove to be mightily anticlimactic. First up, in Book 20, Zeus lifts the ban on the gods entering the battle, and they all join the fight. With the super-powered immortals donning their war gear, we would expect the ancient equivalent of a summer blockbuster. Here's looking at you, Marvel. Yet, the result of the gods fighting against one another is more laughable than epic. And here's the reason. As Bernard Knox writes in his introduction to Fagel's translation, he says, The gods cannot lose their lives no matter what they do. They will survive. And given this crucial difference between gods and men, only men can have true dignity on the battlefield. The presence of the gods there is an impertinence. The immunity of the gods, who fight their mock battles while men stand and die, casts into high relief the tragic situation of the men who risk and suffer not only pain and mutilation, but the prospect, inevitable if the war goes on long enough, of death, of the total extinction of the individual personality. Now second, in book 21, we finally have a chance to see the great warrior Achilles fighting without restraint. However, in his despair over his friend Patroclus' death, Achilles has essentially lost his humanity in what ought to be a display of Achilles' glorious might only reads to us like a horrifying slaughter. And then finally, in Book 22, we have the long-awaited duel between Achilles, the mightiest Greek champion, and Hector, the greatest Trojan. And again, our expectations for a riveting fight are dashed by Homer. The majority of the fight sees Achilles chasing Hector around the city of Troy, but when Hector's courage to fight is finally established through Athena disguising herself as one of his friends, he throws a spear at Achilles and then is promptly stabbed through the neck by Achilles. It's significantly less suspenseful than the pretty well-choreographed duel between Achilles and Hector in the 2004 film Troy. Now, after those three promising, yet ultimately disappointing fights, the true climax of the Iliad comes in Book 24, where Hector's father Priam sneaks into Achilles' tent to beg for the body of his son. Indeed, I would call lines 585 through 599 the most important moment in the Iliad. They begin with Priam saying to Achilles, quote, The one you killed the other day defending his fatherland. My Hector, it's all for him that I've come to the ships now to win him back from you. I bring a priceless ransom. Revere the gods, Achilles. Pity me in my own right. Remember your own father. I deserve more pity. I have endured what no one on earth has ever done before. I've put my lips to the hands of the man who killed my son. Those words stirred within Achilles to desire, a deep desire to grieve for his own father. Taking the old man's hand, he gently moved him back, and overpowered by memory, both men gave way to grief. Priam weeping freely for man-killing Hector, throbbing, couching before Achilles' feet as Achilles wept himself, now for his father, now for Patroclus once again, and their sobbing rose and fell throughout the house. End quote. After all the senseless death throughout the senseless war for Troy, these two enemies weeping together in their grief is deeply moving. 
and Homer clearly intends for it to be. Despite his poem being saturated with war, the ancient bard seems to be desperate for something more, for a hope of peace in the midst of human futility. Now, overall, the Iliad has a fixed place within Western canon of thought for good reason. And despite the progressive rejection of the classics, it's encouraging to see a groundswell of people desiring to reclaim that educational heritage. Indeed, my wife and I have chosen classical education for our children largely because I don't want our daughters to be as unfamiliar with what Mortimer Adler called the great conversation as we were. And although the Iliad certainly ought to be read, there's a great danger in not going further into that great conversation. In comparison to the mushiness of our postmodern world, where division is very often actively fostered, the ancient wisdom of Homer can seem like a firm, a firm foundation. And indeed, I think that's certainly why paganism is a growing worldview today. Yet the hope of a mutual shared grief in light of life's suffering is no hope at all. Or, at best, it's a hope for some kind of hope. Christianity offers a far better wisdom and hope than Homer and paganism in general ever could. In scripture, we find we do not find wicked and deceitful gods that delight in causing mischief and whose coming down into human suffering only mocks our mortality. Instead, we find the almighty creator who is good, just, and true in all of his ways and who descended to earth to suffer and to die as one of us to redeem us from the feudal curse of death. And as beautiful as the scene between Achilles and Priam is, it's likewise futile. Between the Iliad and its sequel, the Odyssey, the Greeks sack Troy and commit a multitude of atrocities against the Trojans. Here again, the Bible offers us a better hope. Of course, we could point to the crucial teachings such as love your neighbor as yourself or whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. But I think even more importantly, we can point to Paul's marvelous words in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, about Jesus reconciling us to one another through his crucifixion. We read there, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, that is, which is made by the flesh of hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Indeed, that's the better hope of the gospel. It does not merely help us to better understand the humanity of others, as great as that is. Rather, it unites us together in Christ, creating in himself one new man in the place of the two. Indeed, as Galatians 3.28 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
and we could easily add Greeks and Trojans to that list. That is the better hope that Jesus offers to us and commands us to proclaim to all the nations. Thank you so much for listening. For more resources for knowing and loving God's word, please visit bcnewton.co. And until next time, grace and peace.